0: Hello, my name is Océane, I come from Martinia, and you are listening to Radio Carom.
1: You're listening to Row & Method, where we talk all things fitness, mindset, well-being, performance, and lifestyle design. But you know what? We actually talk about many other things that don't fit into those categories, so in the future, I'm going to have to change that intro. And today, we have Joey DeBaker, Barker. Backer. Backer. Cool. Third time lucky. And I just asked this just before we went live, but she is a holistic nutritionist, mindfulness leader, and many other things and a wealth of knowledge. And we've been having a great chat before we got started and I had to cut her off many times because I thought this is gold content that we would, our listeners would love to hear. So welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
1: Thank you for coming. And- Let's just have a little bit of a background. You do many things. You're very passionate about wellbeing, health in general, wealth of knowledge. Thoroughly enjoyed the chat so far. We have to revisit them. Tell us about your experience in nutrition.
0: Nutrition, well, that was straight out of high school. I went and studied a Bachelor of Nutrition and Dietetics at Monash Uni uh, based on, I guess, one, my interest in science and uh, food science in particular. Uh, Two, being raised in a family where my mum used a lot of food as medicine. Uh, and we grew veggies at home, and um, as a teenager, moved onto some land, so had fruit trees, and you know, got to experience whole foods and, and farming and um, eating really well. And also, I guess my journey of kind of not battling with my weight, like I've always kind of easily had a a slim body type, but. Still going through the adolescent years and kind of becoming more body self-conscious and being really interested in like little nutrition panels in magazines and wanting to know how to design the perfect diet Mm -hmm. for myself, really, Um, and being very numbers focused and wanting to kind of know exactly, you know, how many grams of carbs and magnesium and wanting to know the science of how to work that all out. That was what kind of started it. Uh, And then through my uni years, kind of realizing, oh, there's a lot more to it than that Mm -hmm. uh, and working with people across the lifespan and in a lot of different settings, um, yeah, just kind of grew my interests out to the whole of health and more than nutrition and diet but kind of what makes us tick and what makes us use the knowledge that we have to make healthy choices uh, and what gets in the way of that.
1: Yeah, that's a fascinating topic. We were talking about it before and I've always been an advocate for the fact that... Tra- uh, information does not, not necessarily equal transformation. If mm. it did, everyone with a Google connection would be able to find the information and change their lives. So I'm curious as to why they don't do it. You mentioned the search for the perfect diet. Was that for you or was that for the public?
0: It started out just for me, really. Yeah. Did yeah. you find it? No. Yeah. It doesn't exist. It's ever changing. And it's, uh, I mean, what I kind of came to, although you can, of course, work out with, you know, great equations, what is your BMR, your basal metabolic rate? Uh, You can use activity factors and stress factors to kind of work out uh, what are your caloric needs and um, look at, Uh, there's EARs and RDIs recommended daily intakes of, um, all different nutrients for different age groups. So you can kind of work out a best guess of what your body needs on a nutrient level. And then you can look at food charts for what amounts of these nutrients are in different foods. But again, that's kind of, it's very variable because it all depends on like this carrot, which soil was it grown in? When was it picked, uh, how was it farmed? How fresh are you eating it? How are you preparing it? What other foods are you putting with it that affect the absorption of those nutrients? So my very analytical mind that wanted things to be precise soon learned that there's so many variables here in these calculations. It's not precise enough for me. So there's got to be another way Mm -hmm. of working out what's the perfect way to eat. And what I came to was intuition and was actually connecting with your own body and being able to tell moment to moment uh, what's the right thing for me to eat? And, of course, a whole lot of kind of anthropological information of just looking at, you know, what – and the the scientific evidence of different diets of, uh, you know, how are humans meant to eat?
1: Yeah. There's so many different perspectives or – versions of that a lot of people have their own opinions so I'm curious to hear yours but it sounds like you're applying and I know we're going to touch on mindfulness but being that mind-body connection and being in tune with your body and how you're responding with certain foods is that what you're alluding to?
0: Absolutely yeah, yeah. so being able to tune within and know uh, what qualities of foods you you feel like what agrees with your digestion uh, what you feel like at different times of day you know there's all these different factors and then of course there's our um, our social and cultural factors, our, our lifestyle. There's so many things that affect what we eat. So, you know, even if you can give someone the perfect meal plan, it's not necessarily going to be achievable because of all these different factors. So,
1: Yeah. A lot of people overlook that. And it's very short-lived. Let's say they get a meal plan and they do it for a couple of weeks. They're usually going to return back to
0: eating the way they used to, or they're going to... Because it's built into our habits, because it's a daily thing. And it's, yeah, it's caught up with our emotions, our social interactions, our culture. So it's got to be suitable for that. So ultimately, I think meal plans are useful for those short term, you know, it's, it's useful to have some guidance to make change and do things for a short time. But ultimately, in the long term, we've got to kind of work it out. Uh, for ourselves with guidance at times to uh, to figure out how to best eat for ourselves, what suits our body type.
1: So it's pretty much a trial and error sort of thing to figure out uh, or with guidance?
0: Yes and no. Like there's, you know, certainly uh, guidance say like Ayurveda is um, a system that I've studied that sort of originated in India about 5,000 years ago. The science of life is what Ayurveda means. Uh, and that looks at the elements: so um, fire, water, earth, and I'm a Vata Pitta. Me too. Oh, really? I'm no not wonder surprised. We get along. <laughs> <laughs> and no wonder we share that sort of dynamic kind of interest in wanting to learn lots of different things. So Pitta people are very kind of driven, organised, uh, want to achieve, and Vata people tend to be quite creative, flexible, um, flow with different things. So when you've got both of those two doshas strong then yeah that's kind of what you get so you know can you explain a kapha as well just for our listeners yeah so kapha uh, so there's three doshas three kind of body constitutions uh, that ayurveda puts forward so vata being the more uh, space and air elements so people would tend to be more lean uh, creative flexible um, might be prone to anxiety might be prone to uh, drying out kind of conditions like constipation or dry skin Pitta is uh, Got the fire element Fire and water elements So more of that kind of drive That organisation A medium kind of body type Prone to um, headaches Being judgmental um, Getting frustrated easily You know But so there's, there's kind of when things are out of balance how do they go and then when things are in balance like there's the strengths and then kapha is the earth and uh, water elements so the more grounded kind of rounder softer body types more prone to gaining weight very steady very reliable um able to kind of achieve things and not get too kind of blown off course
1: yeah so. That was very thorough. Thank you very much. I've heard so many different explanations for it. I know a lot of people would find that very interesting. I found it fascinating looking at all the things associated with each type and I could just categorise so many people in my head, mm. family members, etc. What would be a sign of someone being imbalanced or someone being out of balance with their DOSHA type?
0: I guess any kind of physical health issue or... Um mental psychological health issue is a symptom that something is out of balance. Whether that is their own kind of natal constitution, their dosha that is being exacerbated, or it can be other kind of um, elements or doshas that are pushed out of balance as well. Like we live in a very vata aggravating society because we travel a lot. We have a lot of information coming our way. um, We eat a lot of kind of cold uh, and there are a lot of people that are health conscious, this was a game changer for a lot of people is recognizing that actually eating salads and smoothies is not very balancing for a lot of people yeah. um, who already have that more sensitive digestion. So for me, eating kind of warmer foods, it, it just affirmed for me things that I already knew intuitively and then could kind of learn about and go, oh, that's why I experienced yeah. that. And that's why this client experiences that. And I soon started to see patterns in my clients of these, although I never do like Um, assessment, like I haven't trained to that level to be able to do that, but I can see the patterns enough to know little bits of guidance about the qualities of food and the combinations that can help with their digestion.
1: Does this have an impact on the interventions you work with your clients?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In those ways of just sort of little, um, you know, if they are having, say, a smoothie for breakfast, it might be like, okay, how can we kind of warm that up a bit? Yeah. Um, Or how can we simplify some of the meals? Or how can we add, say, a particular spice or condiment to help balance some meals.
1: Yeah that's fascinating and they don't teach this stuff at university do they?
0: No so this is what I thought I'd get going into a Bachelor of Nutrition and Dietetics was more information about the tastes of food and um, those kind of food as medicine kind of things that you know that you can use ginger for a throat ache or Mm. um, garlic for cold and flu Um, these sorts of Yeah, food as medicine things. But, yeah, it wasn't so much of a focus on that, I guess because there's not necessarily – I mean, there is for those things, but a lot of these kind of food as medicine things aren't really well studied Mm. um, or studied enough to kind of get out into the mainstream science. Despite
1: the fact that it's been around for civilization the whole time, like Ayurveda, it's been around Chinese medicine that works. It's a very long time. It's a proven track record and clearly it works. Mm. And a lot of the
0: science is catching up now.
1: Yeah, well, that's really good. Systems. I love that our uh, science is catching up with lots of things that we know about, like the work of Andrew Huberman talking about lots of science experiments that are backing up things like mindfulness, et cetera. love mm. looking at the data of that. You know, we know they work, but it's good to see why and mm. actually measure it, yes. uh, particularly for us Vata pitters seeing all that data. So in terms of people eating for their body type, how do people know how can they get access to this information? Obviously, it's not readily available. You could probably find it on Google, but there's a lot of conflicting information.
0: So, in terms of your Ayurvedic body type, you can do you can just Google a um, dosha quiz. Yep. I like the Chopra Center one. Um, some of them, I've, I, I mean, every one that I've done has found the same result. Yeah. But I find some of them maybe overly focus on the temperature aspect or maybe the physical aspect, whereas I find the Chopra Center one fairly well balanced. Um, So that would be a good start. Hmm. The tricky thing is that your natal constitution that you were born with might be different from what you're kind of presenting at if you're out of balance. Ah. So if you're answering for like what you experience now and you're out of balance, then it might be a bit different. Um, Ultimately, the best way to get kind of a, a diagnosis of your constitution is to see an Ayurvedic practitioner mm. and they'll look at you, they'll look at your um, tongue, they'll feel your pulse and they'll ask a bunch of questions and yeah, determine it from yeah, have that. Have you ever heard of epigenetics? Yeah, yeah, of course.
1: Yeah. Have you looked into PH3? I think it's PH360, one of the uh, the brands out there. And I found it fascinating that they incorporated the dosha types into their thing. I ended up being a uh, Acti- no, I was a crusader, which was a combination between a sensor and an activator. So it was pretty much the missing link between a vada and a pitta. So it was mm-hmm. like this third category. They divided it into six. And I thought it was really fascinating that they brought mm-hmm. all this information. Yeah, it was really interesting to look kind at. kind of
0: like a bit like human design? like Similar a- to
1: human design, but I think they took thousands of studies. They looked at dosha types. They looked at Chinese medicine. They looked at all these things. And they get the individuals to measure their cranium, their length of their fingers and all these things Mm -hmm. to assess what sort of development was happening in neutro And as I developed as a young adolescent as well, to figure out what hormones were activated and in what dosages and what food and things they should be doing and lifestyle factors they should be living Mm. in association with that. It was really fascinating. I highly recommend that you look into it. I found it really informative. Yeah. But uh, it just already backed up, like you said, intuitively, you know things and you hear that information and it resonates with you. Yeah. You just know.
0: And for people like us that like information, that's very validating and kind of gives you that extra bit of resolve to carry through with it because you know why. Yeah. And yeah. it's more than just because I feel it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's good to know the why. Now we were talking before about if I summarise it, the difference between knowing and doing and why people have all this access to all this information, including ourselves, why we don't do the things that we know we should be doing that are good for us. Mm. It's a very hard thing to answer, but I'd love to explore it with you if you're open to it. Mm. Why do you think with your clients or even from your personal experience you haven't implemented things that you know you should?
0: Mm. I mean, there's there's different factors to that. I think the one that's coming to my mind is kind of our – you know ultimately our body our primal body is kind of run by first we need to stay alive so safety comes first and even though we might be making choices in our lives that don't feel good and we don't we actually want to change things it might be familiar it's part of a habit that has developed that was useful at a point in time and that might have kept us safe or served a purpose at a time and so our body primal body thinks that familiar is safe Mm -hmm. because we know what's going to happen and even if we don't necessarily like that so much like it's okay but i'd really like to you know say get up earlier and meditate in the morning or change the way i eat to feel better um i think our identity can get a bit stuck in that familiarity and safety it's kind of the way i see it is kind of like we've got this clear path through the forest to our familiar identity which is very easy to take because it's been cleared we can see the way we know where we're going and if we want to make a change and you know we can visualize what we want and what that'll be but ultimately we don't actually know exactly and part of that is actually letting go of part of our identity that uh, can be difficult because it's kind of the death of a part of us that it did serve a purpose at a time and also that path hasn't been cleared because we haven't been making those choices regularly. We haven't established it as a habit yet. So we're kind of seeing through this dense, thick forest, all of these barriers and all of these you know, roots and trees and branches that we're going to have to get through to get to somewhere that we, we think we want to get to, but we're not quite sure. Mm. And so with conscious choice and, and with mindfulness and present moment awareness, we can, we can make those choices and those branches that we're going to get through are the uncomfortable feelings that we might have pushed away at other times that are going to come up when we're breaking a habit because so often particularly with eating um we make choices to distract ourselves from you know subconsciously um from uncomfortable feelings or stress or situations in our lives that we don't want to deal with so we do all these things to just kind of get through the day and if we want to make change and make positive change then we've got to kind of confront that which can be difficult And so, we can do that, but then, you know, I think if there's stress, if there's pressure in life, so there's a feeling of being time poor, there's um, children with their many demands, there's uh, work deadlines, it's kind of like there's a bear that's come back up behind you in the forest. And so, you're like, well, I'm definitely not taking that path. I'm taking the well-worn track because I need to get away from the bear. Yeah. So... You know, that's where when we take that step out of our lives to get support from a a coach or a dietitian or um, go on retreat or practice meditation where we're kind of having a moment to pause and to assess and get that bigger picture perspective, we can actually make more conscious steps to making a change. So that was a really long answer to identity, I think is one barrier. Yeah that it can feel scary to actually let go of the parts of ourselves that we do want to change but still a part of us. Yeah. Um, stress, I guess I alluded to, is another big factor that just switches off the part of our brain that helps us make those changes and see the big picture, just puts us in that survival mode of just got to get through the day, just got it's to... the bears
1: behind us. you totally. just got to get out of here. Yeah. I love that analogy. You, you just know...
0: go back into habit mode because that's what the brain can do easily.
1: Yeah, well, it's a program. Mm. That obviously, there is neuroplasticity, you can change the brain with time. The analogy you used about getting from point A to point B through a forest, I've often used it and saying, you know, you start off at the start, you're hacking with a machete, hacking away, hacking away, hacking away, and it's hard. There's vines, there's trees, there's everything else. But then each time you go down that pathway, there's less debris, there's less obstacles, exactly. there's less things. But adding that factor in as the bear or stress disguised as a bear is a pivotal point. I love that analogy. That was really good because mm. that is the fact, that is the reason why people don't invest the time into hacking through the mangroves in the first place because stress has come, finances, debt, whatever it may be, stresses with relationships, health issues, the works, and they just run down that easy path. They go to even if yeah. it's uncomfortable, even if it sucks because it is familiar.
0: Mm. And it's getting me to a point of safety. It's getting me away from the bear. Yeah. So you know, that path array is reinforced every time. But every time, as you say, you're going through the new path and you're clearing it, the other path is not getting used and is starting to grow yeah. thicker and harder to get through. So it you know, I don't know, there's all different numbers that are put forward about how long it takes to break a habit, whether it's yeah. twenty one days or forty eight days or I read um, something
1: recently where they're saying in terms of fitness, you approximately need six months. To actually make going to the gym a habit and if you have a gap it's okay as long as you get straight back in there so the length Mm -hmm. of the gap will probably stop you from continuing to go so yeah apparently some habits like I can't remember what the analogy was um, of this particular study. It was just a recent thing that I happened to see. So, yeah, it is relevant. But that 21-day factor is only for certain things. But things like gym Mm, and probably lifestyle changes definitely take longer. Mm.
0: And it depends on if you have a supportive environment, if you have prompts in your life that help you to make those choices or if through starting a new habit you create that. You know, you have friends that do the same things and you go and do it together. Um, Incidental exercise that happens as part of your life. Um, Or just, you know, it becomes like with sports, you've got a team, you've got um, a game that you've got to prepare for. So what your priorities are in life and how that shifts as you're building new habits, you know, if that kind of falls back into old patterns, then that can kind of get you off course. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, what does Joe Dispenza say about like, you've got to think or feel greater than your environment. To make change because your environment, if it stays the same, is constantly reinforcing your existing habits and patterns. So um, he's all about, he's got a great book called You Are the Placebo about how powerful our mind is to create change in our bodies. Um, And he's all about how, yeah, you, you know, you've got to be able to think and feel greater than what your body and your environment is telling you. You've got to visualise basically yeah. how you want to be. And um and I remember doing this when I had back pain, like doing these kind of healing visualisations and then imagining myself kind of stepping into that, you know, pain-free, flexible, functioning body and really feeling that physically then kind of have an effect on my present state body. Um, and that was what kind of, yeah, my own journey of, of healing my back pain is what kind of started that interest in Mind body connection. And How
1: did you go to form that belief? Because obviously, based on your situation at the time, you were in pain, and mm. that's the filter that you're looking at the world through. I'm big on exploring this option with belief because, you know, there's I, I go back, I was speaking about this the other day. My dad used to tell me about someone that would spin the bone like that in the native villages, and then when the bone would point to someone, that person would die. And most of the time, they would actually go off and die because they believed it so much mm. compared to other people in hospital that if they believe in their surgeon and they believe in a particular intervention, often the new ones, and that's why they prescribe the new interventions as opposed to old ones with a better track record, Mm. purely because people believe they're going to work and they do heal a lot of the time based on that belief. So how did you shift from I'm in pain, this sucks, to healing yourself and being able-bodied now?
0: Mm. I've seen that happen, by the way, where people are are told you've got this many days to live and they, they live true to that. Or um, I've just finished reading a book called "Cured," which is all about um, spontaneous remission and healing uh, from people who, you know, were given weeks or months to live and were in pretty serious, you know, like two percent survival rate kind of conditions, and who went on to to fully recover and anyway back to my journey sorry Um, go with that
1: (laughs) tell me me a little nugget about (laughs) that yeah come back to your one again oh okay i will read the book it's called called
0: cured by jeff red dr jeff rediger Uh, a friend who has a um autoimmune uh musculoskeletal condition there was a a case study of someone with that in there and, and she shared it like a year ago and i just had it sort of on my mind yeah finally got it and rushed to finish reading it so I could pass it on to all the people that I want yeah. to read it. Well, um, you've just passed it, it on to me, I it, will read it. And, you know, all the things that, are, you know, he went through these four kind of areas of like our, our diet, our immune system, uh, our identity and, oh, what was the other one? Something also around kind of uh, belief and and mind-body sort of area and it really did summarise kind of what I went through. I guess, you know, like... So I had a just prolapsed disc, had a snowboarding fall and had prolapsed disc in my back and had sciatica to the point that I kind of had constant pain and my calf muscle was uh, sort of paralysed, like I couldn't, it didn't do what it was meant to do. Um, And, you know, the doctors just said, well, you can get cortisone injections and here's a referral to a surgeon. Um, That was kind of, I mean, I was offered physio, but that just wasn't really doing it. So I did things like physio and acupuncture and chiro, and that would help a little bit, but not. Fully, And it wasn't until I started kind of the meditation, the visualization um, that all that stuff I was doing, all the exercises and stuff started working.
1: Wow. And so what, why do you think that is?
0: I think it's because, and tapping was a big, we spoke about uh, EFT, emotional freedom technique, tapping before as well. Um, I think that process helped me access the underlying reasons of why I was experiencing the back pain. Mm. And of course there was a physical injury But I think, you know, my predisposition to that and the reason that that developed into the sciatica afterwards was because of tension in my body and what that tension was related to and the point in my life that I was just leaving uni, uh, starting work. And so that point of being like, you know, you've gone from school, you've gone to uni, it's all kind of predictable what you're going to do. And then it's like, well, now what? Now I can choose what I do with my life. So all of that fear of the future that uncertainty. Um, yeah. This is where I came across Louise Hayes' book, Heal Your Body, as well, and, you yeah. know, looked up all the things and went, oh, okay, metaphysically this is the emotion or um, belief that this is related to. And so I started using those affirmations and doing the healing visualisation and just basically going, look, I'm 22, I'm not going to have back surgery, that's really risky, surely I can heal this. Mm. And um, just kind of realising I'm going to have to do this myself because I'm not getting... The help from the practitioners that I need. I did get help from great practitioners, yeah. but it wasn't going to heal me. I had to heal myself.
1: But I think that is, people could help facilitate it and guide mm-hmm. you, but you're in charge of your own health journey. They yeah. can't drive the car for you. And you can't be just, okay, I'm going to leave it in this guy's hands because he's got a lot of people on his plate. Mm. You aren't the priority. Mm. You're your own priority and it's your responsibility to heal yourself.
0: And those patterns of physical tension based on um, the emotional you know unfelt emotional stuff um, if that was still happening it would have just kept kept the physical pain in place and so that was why I was getting kind of benefit from a few days because the physical things were shifting yeah. but the the tension patterns were still there of mm. say holding tension in my right hip Yeah. Um, whenever mm. I kind of thought of certain things or felt certain emotions. And so recognising that and actually letting that go and, and having some quite profound meditative experiences, I think just connected me with that uh, belief and um, trust in my body and, and just, I guess, connection with life force yeah. that, you know, is so immediately healing and transformative.
1: I remember hearing from someone, I think it was Caroline Dawson, she uh, Matrix Ram coach and facilitator she gave me a book and i remember we were looking at the physical relationships between an emotional pain and everything else and how they manifest in the body mm. and i think back pain from memory was to do with lack of support mm. that's what i believed was i don't know if that was it could, if it was affecting you at all but that's what i was always told mm. back pain generally stemmed from
0: i think there's many you know depending on where it is in your back yeah. um there's many kind of different yeah, different part. But that's a really typical... It's often, you know, constipation is that you're struggling with letting go of things yeah. in life. Like it's often <laughs> kind of like shoulder is about, I don't know, flexibility or like yeah. hips are about moving forward in life. Yeah. Like
1: I know the moving forward one, yeah. Yeah. It's all interesting though, isn't it? Just exploring these things.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and I just, you know, first kind of read the... I was very scientific and very closed off to all of that until I had those experiences and went, oh, well, I can't deny that um, and just being curious and kind of reading those things and going, oh, that's ridiculous, and then kind of just trying them and going, oh, okay, I can see how that might be part of my story.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a pretty good position to be in because you can combine, obviously, the work that you've done through university and previous experience working with clients, et cetera, and self-experimentation, but with an open minding touch where you're actually exploring these things like mindfulness, mind-body connection, being aware of the physical sensations caused by emotions and things in the body. It's a really Mm -hmm. unique perspective very holistic way to look at it as you describe yourself.
0: And I think as a dietitian, it naturally kind of, you want to upskill in that area because when people are telling you about what they eat, it's so intertwined with their life story and with their uh, social dynamics and relationships that you often, and and they spend often an hour with you. So they get to tell their story uh, and you get, you know, learning how to kind of hold a, a space uh, a loving space and a safe space for people to share their story is so healing in itself and then um, learning those counseling skills and motivational interviewing skills of like okay i can't just kind of give them the food knowledge i mean you can but and some people that's all they need but most people um need a bit of kind of how mm. how do i put this knowledge into place and You know, depending on the client and what they kind of know about me and what I offer and what I can sense about what they're open to depends on will I stick to kind of nutrition or will I incorporate a bit more? And often I will incorporate some visualization or um, maybe, you know, it might be very basic of like kind of goal setting sheets or it might be more like... um, like you can hear that there's a certain self-belief or a certain pattern playing out. And if it feels okay to approach that, then looking at untangling that. Mm. So, Mm. you know, a consultation can go in many different directions depending on what comes up. Yeah. I guess you you have to
1: package it for the audience and you draw upon all the tools that you've acquired over the years. And Mm. they're all useful depending on the person. And also, I guess it's getting them to... Be open to them, so packaging it for the audience in a way that they're receptive to it, that they can actually benefit from the information.
0: Exactly, yeah. Uh,
1: And so it's a very interesting thing, the coaching relationship, but I love hearing people that are doing similar things. And, yeah, so I want to know now, you did talk about community-based food and Mm. sharing. Explain that concept to me because I thought that was fascinating. I've seen the community gardens, always thought about getting involved with it, Mm. thought it would be a really good thing to model for my daughter, just a little project to do. Considering growing things at home, haven't pulled the trigger on it for whatever reason, so I'm hoping you can open the door on that for me. Mm.
0: It's absolutely worthwhile. I honestly think that gardening is one of the best things that we can do for ourselves and for the planet. Um, you know, we get fresh food, we get out in the sunshine, we get our hands in the soil, uh, and we get connection to the earth and to um, our food. And even if it's small amounts, like even if it's just a bit of time that you pick fresh to put as a garnish on your meal, like it's it's rewarding. Mm. We uh, picked a bunch of our green tomatoes. We, I think that we must have planted them too late. It was a bit of a haphazard kind of like let's start a veggie garden as well once we've gotten chickens and sheep and all these other things and <laughs> we ended up just planting what grew out of the compost with these other plants that we'd um, planted. Yeah. Anyway, so we got about 20 ripe tomatoes for the season and about 2,000 unripe tomatoes. So we had like the cart full. So we've just been making green tomato chutney. Uh, and oh, it's so rewarding it's it. so delicious yeah i mean there's always a use for everything do your kids eat chutney no my kids are actually pretty plain eaters and this one has chili in it so i probably wouldn't give it to them but we'll make another batch of a non-spicy version and then i was yeah, just confirming that we actually
1: had sound and we do have sound oh, which God. is fantastic <laughs> i'm just making sure so anyone that was listening to a live broadcast through radio carom it says that there is an error no idea why But we are live on Facebook right now. I just had to check that after our mishap earlier this week. So where can someone start like me? Mm. Do not have the green thumb at Mm. all. I want to grow some things. My daughter actually wants to have parsley. She Mm -hmm. wants to include it in her omelets or something like that. Beautiful. What what can I do? What can a noob like me when it comes to gardening? Start
0: with pots. Um, You know, buy the soil, buy an organic potting mix. Um, Do you compost? Do you have space for a compost heap? So putting your kitchen scraps.
1: I'd like to say we would. My partner would probably say we don't. Yeah. (laughs) uh, uh, That's a good start because then you're you're, you're
0: making soil to use. But, I mean, you know, a really simple way to start is just with a pot on the balcony or in the backyard um, with some herbs because they're pretty hardy.
1: What herbs are good? What goes with everything?
0: Parsley's great. I love coriander, but it's a bit of a tricky one. It tends to bolt to seed. Yeah. Maybe well, I just haven't I got the right condition for it. associate coriander
1: with Banh Mi's. Yes, um,
0: yeah. or any kind of, yeah, Vietnamese, yeah. Thai food, yeah. yeah now I want good for pita. To... Coriander is a good cooling herb. Really? so Yeah. I very didn't know good that. for pita, dosha. Um, what else? I mean, things like thyme and rosemary and mint are very hardy, So, you know, you, you can't kill them. Um, parsley is very versatile, very high in iron. I'd start with some of those. Yeah. Mm, Lemon balm is another really nice herb that you can use um, as a tea, which has got um, really good calming properties, good for your digestion. Yeah. And also very easy to grow. I mean, it grows as a weed, pops up everywhere in our garden. Now, how much
1: maintenance and attention does it need? Because, Something
0: like rosemary and thyme, very, very little. Okay. Uh, Something like parsley will just need a bit more water. Yeah. And coriander.
1: Because I'd like to ease myself into it. Same as for me, any habit or any venture. Same with people come to me for fitness or anything like that. We make small changes. Ideally, mm. get some easy wins, get some runs on the board, give them some confidence to continue moving forward. So if I go and get that plant, put it there, and it survives for a while, it'll motivate me to do more. And before you know it, hopefully I've got a tomato tree and everything else. And yeah, we're living a similar sort of life to, that you've described, which sounds very pleasant. Yeah. What vegetables are easier to grow?
0: tomatoes are a good one um we just kind of finished the tomato season though so going into winter it'll be more the brassica veggies Uh, so that's your cauliflower broccoli kale and silver beet and swiss chard rainbow chard they're most of your greens are pretty easy to grow
1: yeah any time of year
0: um pretty much okay yeah yeah um spinach that sort of thing Um, But coming back to your um, community food co-op, you know, this is where you can also, I mean, engaging in your community garden will be a really good way to learn or or listening to a podcast. There's so many resources out there for getting started in your garden. Mm. Um, But the whole community food idea is that we don't have to do it all ourselves, Mm. that we can eat local homegrown food and we share it amongst our community, which is what used to happen, you know, 50 or so years ago just – out of necessity because we didn't have such constant access to abundant food um, at the supermarket and the grocery store. So, you know, in a way kind of we've become so affluent that we can afford all this food and food that's transported from all around the world uh, and all these packaged and processed foods and we've kind of realised, oh, that's actually not very good for us or yeah. the planet. So we're kind of going back to what we used to do in providing more for ourselves and um, and each other in our neighbourhood.
1: I heard they are making plans to try and make it illegal to grow your own food.
0: I heard that too, but I, I think that was overblown. I think that was an overreaction to some legislation around a okay. farming thing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah,
1: I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> we've had enough changes. So um, in terms of food... What is the process, because we were talking before about you potentially having a podcast with a farmer and we're talking about where food comes from, the process that it goes through to get from where it is to the supermarket, to our plates. What happens to food? What does it go through and what's the difference between organic and just conventional food that you get from Woolies?
0: Yeah, I'll start with that. Um, So these days conventional um, produce will tend to be uh, grown in soil that has been uh, tilled or kind of, uh manually turned over which disrupts the fungal networks in the soil it releases carbon into the atmosphere uh, it'll then be prepared with uh, chemical fertilizers nitrogen-based fertilizers uh, the, the you know seeds will be planted and then at some point they'll be spraying of pesticides or herbicides to get rid of uh, weeds or uh, you know insects or other pests that might come and damage the crop so it's really kind of a you know, we've got to get maximum crop production and we've got to beat nature and we've got to uh, improve on nature to kind of get that crop happening. So there's a lot of chemical inputs uh Okay, so then versus organic, it's really coming from more of an approach of nature's already got it figured out. How can we work with it to get good food production without having to use chemical inputs? So that, that's the clear thing is there's not chemical pesticides, herbicides or fertilisers used. It'll be um, compost made from uh, food scraps, animal manures, uh, green waste, um, you know, seaweed, these sorts of things that naturally enrich the soil. Um, generally no-till farming methods, so trying to retain the fungal and bacterial networks in the soil through minimal disturbance. Um, what else? So, you know, there'll be organic sort of pest control methods used like, I mean, say with the apples, like we get this coddling moth, this little moth that kind of burrows inside the um, the apple and makes a little home inside it. So it doesn't do huge damage, but I it remember turns... remember my
1: nana's apples as a kid.
0: Yeah, and you can still eat you know, three quarters of the apple, but it turns a a first grade apple into a second grade apple. So um, one of the things that we just learned going to the Red Hill Show this year is what we can do is um, hang some uh, molasses and Vegemite because of the yeast uh, in the Vegemite. The animal is attracted to that and will kind of drown in there and then relieve the pressure on the apples. So all these sorts of, you know, I mean, there's so many other, you know, natural sprays and things, natural pesticides that you can use to, still get a high yield but i mean that's often the argument that's used that organic doesn't give us high yields but the idea of organic systems is that it's not this monoculture massive crop kind of production system it's a diverse ecosystem so particularly then when you're looking at um, permaculture that's really setting gardens and systems up with that view to be really self-sufficient and sustainable um And then looking at biodynamics is a step further. It's a particular system that is all about kind of harnessing the energy of the cosmos in the particular preparations and fertilisers that are used and uh, working with the moon and the cycles of the earth. So, Wow.
1: Now, how is this accessible to the average person? Because I know just most people struggle to buy organic food purely because it's significantly more expensive than the conventional stuff. Yeah. And the other factor is it doesn't last as long because obviously it doesn't mm. have all those, all this, whatever they've done to it to make sure that it stays on the shelf for longer and is okay for transport and stays in the fridge for longer. What, how can they navigate mm. around that? Because obviously they're health conscious, they know there are benefits to it. What do you suggest? Obviously growing it yourself would be one aspect.
0: Absolutely. That's the cheapest way to do it for sure. Um, is that
1: sustainable? So hypothetically, how long does it take for the average amount of fruit or vegetables to grow?
0: Uh, I mean, in terms of fruit, planting fruit trees, you know, can take years before you're getting a harvest. So that's a real long-term investment. I mean, things like berries and uh, smaller kind of bush-based fruits are going to be a bit quicker to get a harvest. Veggies are pretty quick, you know. That's a real good way to save and to get more of a veggie intake. I mean, this is the, you know, most Australians are not eating enough of any veggies, let alone organic veggies. Yeah. I mean, and the reason organic produce is more expensive is because it's actually reflecting the true cost of food production Mm. and the conventional prices are really reflecting all the corners that have been cut um, to get, you know, to to kind of produce this large scale massive system that is really harming the earth and harming our bodies, um, but it's cheap. Mm. And so I kind of come back to you can't have all three out of convenience, quality and cost. You've either got to pay more to have convenient, healthy food or you can have convenient, cheap food but it's not going to be healthy yeah. or you've got to put in the effort and have less convenience, you know, for growing your own, buying through food co-ops, buying through farmer's markets, um, getting to know kind of your local food supply to get cheaper, uh, good quality food. That's
1: a really good way of looking at it, um, yeah.
0: So it's like so. where do you want to, you know, do you want to drop the ball? Pick on the you're co- poison. <laughs> <essentially>. <laughs> if you want yeah. the quality, yeah. you've either got to put in more money or more effort.
1: Yeah, and I guess that comes back to what you were talking about with that analogy where you got the bear and there's that stress. Obviously, everyone would love, even me, I love the concept and the idea of growing my own food. And I am going to commit to doing it, particularly after this conversation, but I've been putting that on the back pedal for ages. I just haven't Mm. pulled the trigger on it for whatever reason. The world keeps turning. Things keep happening. There's Mm. responsibilities. You can buy it at the
0: store. Why bother?
1: Exactly. I have been a little bit more diligent about choosing things that are organic or at least grass-fed when I'm buying meat and things like that as well. Yeah. And sort of steering towards doing that for various reasons. And the quality of the food is significantly better.
0: The taste is, yeah, and the freshness. So, you know, um, this farmer that I mentioned, we were getting their – veggie boxes delivered each week so they're picked either the day before or on the morning and they're delivered to us that day so it's super fresh all organic and regeneratively grown all like heirloom varieties which tend to have better nutrition and better flavor Um, so that's the other thing the varieties of fruits and vegetables that we've got in the supermarket are all the ones that have been selected for long shelf life and uh, like less bruising and that sort of thing, like appearance. easy transport and appearance. Yeah. Not for nutrition and not for taste. Yeah. So that's why, like, I can't eat a supermarket apple because it just is just doesn't taste like anything compared to funny? the apples off our trees. Um, but you know, in terms of getting started on getting like being able to eat organic, with the the price tag being difficult. I would say, I mean, that brings me to the food co-op. So what we do is we bulk buy, every two months we do a bulk dry goods order of like your know, nuts and seeds and flowers and oils and those sorts of pantry staples. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we get bulk price, which is like 15, 20% cheaper than what you'd pay at the supermarket or the health food store. Yeah, And we get wholesale price because we're buying as a collective. So we're like our own shop buying so, from. So how do we get access to that? sounds uh, fantastic. So the Balnaring Food Co-op, which I'm a part of, we probably do have a few spots at the moment. Um, basically, you get in touch with me or you email the yeah. coordinator and, and she'll run you through it and, and you get a spot if you're willing to uh, put in. It's all volunteer-based, so... Every two years, there's a rollover of the core roles, like the ordering coordinator, the member coordinator, the packing coordinator and the banker. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then everyone else is rostered on packing. So when we get the big order to, you know, our packing location, um, it used to be that we come with our our containers ready to fill up. Since COVID, we've been doing brown paper bags and then everybody collects, but we might go back to the old system, a bit more kind of communal involvement, although more packing errors. So, Mm -hmm. um. Yeah, so, okay. So, say if you're not near Balmaring, there are other food co-ops I can, you know, put people in touch with. One in Rye, um, one in Red Hill, up this way more. I know there's places like Terra Madre and Source Whole Foods, like shops that, you know, have got that bulk food store where you can kind of go bring your containers and fill up. Um, But I mean, starting a food co-op is actually very easy. You only need like four people who are willing to buy a decent amount of food. And just getting together, finding a supplier, and and putting an order in.
1: Such a great initiative, and I think the things that you're describing—growing your own food, being involved with this co-op—really changes, and even the quality of the food, the taste, and everything else, the nutritional content that comes with it, mm. changes your entire relationship that you have with food. It and inspires
0: talking- you to cook interesting things yes. and t- to honor the food and to do justice to well, it. You
1: said as well that food can be medicine. Now mm. for a lot of people food is just pleasure. Now there are certain things as you mentioned where socialization that comes with food, but a lot of people some people view it as fuel, you know, to fuel workouts and refuel which is fine for performance based. But yep. for most people it's convenience. They just eat because they have to. They'll go without if they can. They want the dopamine hit. It's purely pleasure based. They have no consideration for the health implications that come with it. How can we change that? How can we make people more aware and more food conscious?
0: mm I think it it depends on the individual and what their uh, values are and what their motivations are in life. Because as you say, some people will be motivated by that food is fuel and I want to fuel my body as best as I can for a a sports or performance outcome or maybe a a mental sharpness outcome. Um, Because, you know, of course, it affects our physical health, but it affects our mental health a lot as well. There's a lot of research coming out now from a a researcher in uh, Burwood, actually, Felice Jacka, on the link between mental health, uh, depression and other mental health conditions and our diet Mm. and really simple uh well the diet looking directly yeah but of course there are yeah a lot of studies also looking at the gut yeah Uh, that's sort of that step in between because then our diet affects our gut affects our mental health yeah um
1: i think we could all have it we've had experiences where we know that we feel a particular way after certain foods absolutely It's an interesting thing to find out. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But then, you know, there's other people who, like for me, I find that I'm probably more motivated by an environmental focus than a personal health focus. If I Mm want to make a change, that thought will engage me more than and motivate me more than the health focus. Maybe because it's less, maybe because my identity is more focused on like I want to do right by the environment than I want to be particularly healthy or maybe there's less to let go of on that narrative. Yeah, a very
1: noble approach.
0: Yeah, well, it's just recognising, you know, what's my motivation? Is it because I want to save money? Is it because I want to uh, make more sustainable choices? Because our food choices uh, have a massive impact on the environment and people will go straight to like their um, electricity or the car they drive and those sorts of things if they want to be more sustainable. But your food choices are a big one. Um, a lot of people are are doing that and, and maybe going to the extreme of going vegan or, um, you know, sort of making massive changes where there's, for me, I think locally eating and being connected with our food supply should be the first focus.
1: Out of curiosity, if you were to eat out, where would you be choosing and what would you be looking for? Obviously, people are social. We talk about socialisation with food. Sometimes people want to get takeaway. Obviously, mm. it's, there's... Many evils. What is the lesser of all the mm. evils? What would you do if you were on the run and you were going to eat with friends or you needed a snack and you didn't have access to the food that you grow at home? Mm. What would you choose?
0: Um, I mean, I love food and I love all different cuisines and types of food. So, you know, we get weekly takeaway from the local pizza place, but it's a really good quality um, pizza place. And, you know, I can get fish and veggies or I can get lasagna or I can get a chicken dish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we went out for dinner the other night to a Japanese place that had all beautiful different meals. Um, my favourite cafe in Mornington, uh, Corner Counter, has got these beautiful salads and sandwiches and soups, like really simple homemade feel kind of food. So basically what I would be looking for is somewhere pretty much that's going to have vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> um, somewhere that's going to have whole foods. Food that's you know real and that's and it's based on whole foods. So steering as far away f- as possible from your McDonald's and your KFC and the fast food, deep fried food, kind of um, full of preservatives and flavour enhancers, kind of food. Yeah, yeah.
1: I've been uh, caught out caught out many times where I just hadn't planned and I didn't have access to food and I just need to fill a void in terms of energy. Busy mm. day, things are doing... And, do you know, sometimes Macca's
0: that. is the only thing that you've got when you're driving. I and know, that's...
1: but you feel like crap every time you eat it. And if you really weigh up the standard of the burger, if I'm going to have a burger, occasionally I'll have a homemade one and mm. it's got absolutely or everything grilled. I love grilled. Grilled is also fantastic. <laughs> but I've had some pretty epic burgers over the years, much to the shock of a, another nutritionist that was on the show recently. Uh, she's known me very well. But in terms of... You know, those food choices, I know how I feel after. One simple meal that I have quite often if I am time poor is a big tin tin of salmon with some rice. And it looks like cat food. looks like crap. It's not visually appealing at all. But after I eat it, I feel really good. Mm. I just feel I have that state of clarity. I don't have any. I don't feel heavy. I don't feel anything mm. like that. I don't feel like I get a sugar rush and a crash. Mm. It's just consistent, stable energy. Mm. It's, uh, it's fascinating. Whereas I'll have another thing like a burger, which looks amazing, Instagram worthy, but I feel like crap after mm. I have it.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean the the rice and salmon is giving you your basic needs to refuel to get your brain and and system Protein, back fats online.
1: And all
0: yeah. Um, And so it's simple enough as well that it's easy to digest. Yeah. Um, So that's the thing with a lot of modern food. We have so much beautiful food and we want to make it delicious, but there's a lot going on in a burger or in, uh, you know, fancy restaurant kind of meals that just by the fact that there are so many different elements that your body has to try and digest, it, it can be more difficult because we um, there's ve- different enzymes and um, you know a different kind of pH environment a whole different kind of uh, stomach situation and small intestine situation that's needed to digest all these different nutrients so if we've got so much going in in one go um, it's just more difficult
1: but that's what most people want they just want these sensationalized giant monstrosities of food with everything combined together you were talking about Because I
0: think we also we want a feeling of fullness. Whereas what we actually need is a feeling of satisfaction. Mm. And that's a big thing that I talk to people about is particularly whether it's for losing weight or health changes, uh, like chronic health conditions, or whether it's for improving their digestion. It's going to work across the board because you're giving your body space to actually digest your food properly and not overloading it. Um, but yeah, so often, you know, we want that feeling of like being jam packed full cause it's kind of a bit numbing cause all our blood rushes to our digestive system. It's busy processing all the food. Um, and we get, you know, a bit of that kind of food coma state. And a lot of people associate that with like, I'm full, I'm finished. Mm. But in many cultures they have, um, a way of, uh, like in, in, Japan, they say, you're finished when you're 80% full. Um, In France, they don't even have a word for full. It's just I am no longer hungry uh, is how you say you're finished. So really we need to actually be leaving space, physical space in our stomach for all those enzymes and acids and digestive factors to go in there and break down the food. So we need to stop when we're satisfied, when we're no longer hungry rather than actually physically full because that's when at the point where it's kind of like if you fill your – washing machine completely full to the brim. It's yeah. not going to wash as well because the, the water and the soap can't get to all those different um, the surface area of all the towels or the washing in there. So
1: That's very interesting. And it's it's funny that our society is very geared towards well most people have grown up, you must finish your plate. Mm. You order something, you must finish it, you can't waste food. So we're conditioned food, to
0: override like. our natural hunger and fullness signals.
1: Yeah. How does one combat that?
0: With mindfulness. Mm. With tuning back in and connecting. Yeah, so I often encourage people to eat one mindful meal a week where they actually – their full focus for that meal is their food, their senses, and checking in as they go, chewing really slowly. I mean, that is a game changer. Yeah. And then checking in with their hunger and fullness levels as they go. So I will sometimes get people to keep a, a food diary but also a hunger and fullness diary. So before they eat, noting kind of on a scale how hungry are you, And then after you eat, how full or satisfied are you? And just starting to notice patterns.
1: Yeah, that awareness that it cultivates. We were talking before about my experience with mindfulness and I remember how slow everyone ate. So we did 10-day silence in that Buddhist temple in Thailand and they were encouraging us to eat mindfully. It was always vegetarian Mm -hmm. meals. And we'd sit there and everyone would be just lifting, moving, placing, smelling, chewing, feeling the sensations, swallowing the food. And everyone said the food was terrible. I thought it wasn't too bad. But uh, everyone said it was horrific at the end of the 10 days. But there was one particular day where I came in and all there was was a bread roll. And I picked up my bread roll. I put it on my plate. I looked at it. And I just looked around. It's only the one bread roll for me. And no matter how, I always ate as much as I could every time because I was going to be fighting Muay Thai after. So food was a fuel for me. I just ate it no matter how bad it was. Mm. And then I realised how people in the world would be really grateful for having this bread roll and that was the message and that was a lesson. Anyway, on the last day, all these people come up to me and they said that when they got in there and that they saw that it was only bread roll, they positioned themselves to watch me. Because no matter how bad the food was, they refused to eat it. I always went back for seconds because I didn't want to lose weight. So I just inhaled the food regardless. Probably not so mindful at the time I just wanted <laughs> food. But, yeah, that experience of being present. And I try to do that now from time to time, even if it's with the first bite, and really feel the sensations of a food. And I've mm-hmm. encouraged a lot of people to try it. And you get this whole new appreciation for the food itself.
0: Absolutely. Very interesting. Mm. It's such a game changer because so often we're we're off in our heads, we're distracted, we're eating on the run, even we're not even sitting down. Um, So when you actually stop and tune into your senses and appreciate your food, you get the connection that you're after when you're eating. You you know Sometimes you get the feeling of gratitude of like, how lucky am I to be eating this food? And you think of where it was grown and where it came from and what a great thing it is that you're able to eat it at this point in time.
1: That appreciation of the food and also slowing down to give your body a chance to actually be aware that it is eating as opposed to just shoveling it down and going well beyond your capacity. We are running out of time. Now, I want to go over a couple of things. We are going to have to have you back because I know you're doing some great initiatives with women's groups. I definitely want to share that with people in the future. And we want to talk more about mindfulness. We've touched on a little bit, so we're going to have to have you back. How can people get in contact with you now?
0: Uh, Probably Instagram, Living Nutrition, or uh, Facebook page, Living Nutrition has got my mobile number on it and my email. Yeah. So go, yeah, Instagram, mobile or email because my website is currently down because yep. <laughs> I'm, I'm really working very little. I'm I'm raising three kids and started a farm and helping out my mum and, yeah, running motherhood circles is kind of... Can you expand at on that? Just before
1: we finish, what are these motherhood circles that you run? And just in case someone wants to get access through them.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's a monthly circle uh, for not just mothers with children, but um, women of kind of childbearing age Um, To come together, to sit in circle, it's kind of a bit of a ritual that we go through of lighting candles and um, saying a little kind of motherhood invocation to call ourselves present. And then every woman has a chance to speak and to be heard uninterrupted. uh, and, And everybody in circle is invited to hold a loving space for every woman that's there. So, this is something I started attending when my second, when I was pregnant with my second. It was run by um, my doula at the time, and a, a whole bunch of us that are still friends now sort of all met and attended that circle regularly. And then it was for pregnant women and uh sort of fourth trimester like new baby mothers Mm. and as our babies got older and they were it was kind of like okay you know it's time to move on they're crawling you can't bring them to circle anymore we were like but we still want to come to women's circle or motherhood circle so it just evolved from that point and went through uh, a few other facilitators and um i've kind of taken over taken it over this year and running it at my in-laws beautiful farm in mount martha wow So, you know, it's an afternoon that is a really lush, relaxing, rejuvenating space for women. So, I put on a beautiful afternoon tea. We have a theme or a topic like the next one is on hormones because a lot of people have been expressing the interest to learn more about women's hormones, particularly around perimenopause and postpartum and um, PMS and sort of hormonal mood disorders related to hormonal imbalances. Uh, What was it last time it was on? Creating Our Village... Uh, We've done tapping, a subconscious flow process. So, yeah. yeah. Sounds
1: like a great initiative.
0: Yeah, it's a really nourishing space for mums to come and, uh, you know, be held by one another. It's kind of bringing back those ancient ways of learning and connecting rather than just that didactic kind of. Connection is so
1: important for both genders and everyone in between. It's often overlooked in terms of well-being and health in any regard. So I love that you're doing that and you're creating that safe space for women to connect with the common interest, learn and focus on personal growth. And as you said, hold space for each other. So it's an amazing initiative. We are at the end of the show. For everyone that's listening, next week I'm going to be doing another solo episode. I believe it's next week and we're going to be doing probably another 30 to 50 reasons why you feel like crap and you think your life sucks. And we're gonna add some things in about what you can do about it. So I hope you enjoyed the session. Reach out to Joey when you get the chance and we will speak to you next week. Have a great night. Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy, and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC. And when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Karam. Tune in and enjoy.
0: Don't worry about a thing, cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. Don't worry. About a thing. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. If you got a tummy ache, or you don't feel right. Or you have a nasty rash, keeping you up at night. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. About a thing. Don't worry. <laughs>
1: Cause Atticus <laughs> help <health> will make <laughs> you feel alright. <laughs>